Love you guys too. Appreciate that. In uh, 2009, an author and speaker named Simon Sinek, he uh, gave a TED Talk known as How Great Leaders Inspire Action. And this TED Talk has now become the most viewed TED Talk uh, ever. It's got almost 56 million views. And two years later, after giving this TED Talk, Simon Sinek, he wrote kind of a a follow-up book expanding on this idea, and he titled the book, Start With Why?, And in the book, he looks at some of the the most influential leaders, some of the most innovative companies, companies like Apple, leaders like the Wright Brothers and and MLK Jr. And he tries to identify what do all of these companies, these, these leaders have in common? What was it that made them successful? And through his research, through his study, what he realized is that these great leaders, these great companies, they didn't focus first and foremost on what they did, but instead they started with why they did it. And their, their why, it was their, their purpose, it was their cause, their convictions, it was their vision. These great leaders and companies, they began with this compelling vision. And it was this vision, it was their why that inspired their behavior and inspired what they did. And at the end of the book, Simon uh, Sinek kind of finishes by saying that all of us, we all have a why. Whether we realize it, whether we can even articulate it, all of us have personal convictions and beliefs that drive our behavior. We have a vision for our life that influences how we live our lives. Like we have a vision for our families, what we want our our families to look like and, and be about. We have a vision for, for our finances. We have a vision for our career, the things we want to accomplish and, and achieve. We have a vision for our retirement life, what we want that to look like. But here's what we're going to see today. To live an unoffended life, you need a compelling vision for your life. If you're going to live this unoffended life, you need a compelling why, a compelling vision, a compelling purpose for your life. We are in a part two of our series called Unoffended. And throughout this series, we're talking about living an unoffended life in a culture of offense. And last week, we looked at what Jesus had to say about this, that when it comes to being wronged by other people, and listen, we're all going to be wronged by other people at some point in life, the offense, what they do, what they say, the offense, it's outside of our control. We're not responsible for other people's behavior and actions, but being offended, that is within our control. That is our response. We choose how we respond to the offense. And we saw that as followers of Jesus, Jesus is asking us, Jesus is commanding us to lay down, to put aside our right to be offended and to follow the example that Jesus set and modeled for us. So this morning, we're going to look at a story from the Old Testament. And it involves a a man who receives this compelling vision from God, a vision that inspired him to action. And it's this vision from God that allows him to endure the offenses that he suffered. It's this vision that allowed him to live an unoffended life. So if you have your Bibles or you have the, the, the Bible app on your phone, I'd encourage you to open up to the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah, we're going to be looking at several chapters from this book, but we'll be starting in in chapter one. But before we jump in, let me give you a little bit of context, a little bit of of setting as to what's going on here. 
uh, the Israelites, they have been in exile. They have been in captivity for a number of years now. Um, They were originally taken captive by the Babylonians. And when the Babylonians came and, and took them captive, they took them as prisoners. They completely destroyed the capital city of Jerusalem. Like they they just leveled it and they destroyed the temple where they worshiped and they destroyed the wall surrounding the city of Jerusalem. They just left it in ruins. It was completely devastated. But since that time, the Persian empire, they have overthrown the Babylonians as kind of the the top empire now. They're the, the top dogs. And when the Persians rose to power, they allowed many of the Israelites to return back to Jerusalem. They let them go home. They weren't entirely free. They were still subject to the, to the Persian empire, but they allowed them to, to return home. And when these Israelites, they, they got home, they found their, their capital city of Jerusalem just, I mean, just in, in, in pieces, rubble everywhere. Their, their temple, their beloved temple that they had, had spent years building was just destroyed. So they began the process of rebuilding temple. And it's nowhere near what the, the original temple was, but they finished this, 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 this building. They finished the temple. They can begin to, to worship God and, and, and do their sacrifices. But the wall all around the city is still just in ruins. In fact, it's been that way for almost 150 years now. And without this wall surrounding the city, they are um, open. They are vulnerable to attack from their enemies. There'll never be a legitimate nation, a legitimate people again if they don't have this perimeter defending them. So that's where our story picks up today. In Nehemiah chapter one, starting in verse one, it says this. These are the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, he came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned him about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. He's wondering, what's going on with the people? What's going on with the city? And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province, they are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem, it is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So here we're introduced to our main character, a guy named named Nehemiah. And it's important to know that Nehemiah, he served as the cupbearer to the king of Persia. This was a significant and prominent role, one that gave him direct access to the king. And when Nehemiah hears about Jerusalem, when he hears about the people, he's just overwhelmed with emotion. He, he, he's broken, he's upset, he begins to weep, he begins to fast and to, to, to pray to God. But you see, he's not just upset because the, the wall is in, in ruins. He's upset because the Israelites, they have tried to rebuild the wall and they have been stopped. In fact, in the book of Ezra, we read about this, this very account, how the Israelites, they began to, to rebuild the wall, but the enemies in their area, they did not want to see the Israelites succeed. So they began to make up these false accusations about them. They sent letters back to the king of Persia saying, Israel's planning on revolting. They're gonna try to separate. They're gonna stop paying taxes. They're, they're, they're making up all these lies and these accusations. But the king of Persia, he hears this report and he just puts a stop to it. He says, you're done. You're, you're, you're not rebuilding the wall. But now Nehemiah, he feels like he is being given this, this vision from God. 
he feels led to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem, to take on this massive project, this, this massive project of rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. But in order to do that, he would first need permission from his boss, who happened to be the king of Persia, the very king who had put a stop to rebuilding the wall the first time. But Nehemiah feels so compelled by his vision, he feels so strongly about it that he's willing to risk his life and to go to the king and ask, I need you to let me leave for months, travel to Jerusalem and rebuild this wall for my people. It's a ridiculous request. This would be like you going in tomorrow morning to your boss and saying, I need 12 months of paid vacation. And after vacation, I plan on submitting my receipts for reimbursement, and I expect my job to still be there when I get back. Like, the the thing that Nehemiah is asking, like, in in our minds is, like, there's no way that he's going to let you leave for months to go rebuild a wall that he has already stopped you guys from rebuilding. But Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 2, it says this. Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid, and rightly so, he should be worried. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried, it lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, okay, Nehemiah, what is it you want? What is it you you need? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. It's this bold audacious request. And the king, he responds graciously. But he doesn't just give Nehemiah permission to go back and to rebuild the wall. He sends letters to the surrounding governors and cities saying, I want you to provide Nehemiah with safe travel back to Jerusalem. And I want you to provide him with supplies to go about rebuilding this wall. And the king even went as far as sending his own army officers and his own cavalry with Nehemiah. You can see God's hand of blessing all over this vision, all over this situation. So Nehemiah, he travels back to to Jerusalem and he begins to, to inspect the wall. He's trying to see like, okay, how big of a mess is this? How big of, a, of an undertaking is it? Where, where do I start? Where do I begin? What do I have to work with? And Nehemiah, he starts to, to recruit a team to help him. He starts to pull in some of the key leaders in, in the city of Jerusalem. And he begins to share this vision with them, this vision to rebuild the, the wall. He tells them about the king's favorable response. He tells them about God's blessing on this vision. And these men, they begin to get excited. Maybe finally they can secure the safety of their people. They can secure the safety of of Jerusalem. They begin to rally around this compelling vision that God has given to Nehemiah. But there were two men who weren't happy about this. A man named Sanballat and a man named Tobiah. And, and I don't know why Sanballat's parents named him Sanballat, um, other than they wanted him to be bullied in elementary school. Um, but you have Sanballat and Tobiah, and they're these local government officials. They represent the king of Persia in this region. And for whatever reason, we're not told why, they hate the Israelites. They don't like them. And they do not want to see Jerusalem and the Israelites 
restored to any place of power or prominence. They don't want to see this, this wall rebuilt. So they begin to stir up trouble and issues for the Israelites and, and for Nehemiah. They begin just by, by mocking them and insulting them. They're like, who, who do these losers think they are? Like, you really think you can pull this off with Nehemiah leading you? Like, you're going to rebuild an entire wall around a city? You must be out of your minds. There's no way that you're going to be able to pull this off. And in their minds, they're thinking, like, this isn't anything to worry about. Let's just embarrass them. Let's humiliate them. Let's just discourage them so that they'll, they'll quit. But they underestimated Nehemiah because Nehemiah knew what he was doing. And the people, they begin to make progress. They begin to, to see a lot of success. The wall begins to, to take shape. It begins to form around the city. So Sam, Bal, and Tobiah, they're like, okay, we need to do something different. And they gather together some of the other leaders in the area. And they come up with this plan. Okay, we, we need to do something to stop them. And they decide, here's what we'll do. During the night when they're least expecting it, we're going to attack them and we're just going to wipe them out. We're, we're, we're going to take things to the next level. We're going to end this chance of them rebuilding the wall. But Nehemiah, he catches wind of what they're going to do. And he sets up guards all along the perimeter of the wall. Half the men work, half the men are, are security. And I, I just want you to notice here for, for a moment. Nehemiah, he is so focused on the vision. He's so focused on what he needs to accomplish that he doesn't have time to respond to their threats. He doesn't have time to, to slow down and, and, and respond to them. Instead, he presses on through the opposition, through the offenses, and he continues to make progress on the wall. And very quickly, the wall is completed. Other than, than a couple of gates that, that need to be installed, they, they, they take on this massive project and very quickly they finish the wall around the city. And Sam Ballad and Tobiah, they're not happy. And this is where things begin to kind of escalate. In Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says this When word came to Sam Ballad, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. Verse 2 Sam Ballad and Geshem sent me this message Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. So these men, they begin to change their, their tactic. They realize Nehemiah is clearly a great leader. He knows what, what he's doing. And now that the wall is finished, it's constructed, there's no way that we can attack the Israelites. They'll be able to be safe inside the city. So the only way for us to put a stop to this is we need to get Nehemiah away from Jerusalem. We need to pull him away from the wall. Because if we can get him on, on, on our territory, we can take care of him. We can kill him. And without uh, Nehemiah, the, the, the whole vision, the whole project is just going to crumble without his leadership. But Nehemiah, he figures out what's going on. He catches on pretty quickly. And listen to how he responds. I, I love his response here. He says, but they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on, catch this, a great project and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. Nehemiah is saying, I have this compelling vision from God. 
this vision to rebuild the wall. And I am so focused, I am so locked in on carrying out this great project that I cannot come down to you. I don't have time to respond to your nonsense. I'm too busy carrying out what God has called me to do. Why should I stop what I'm doing? Why should the work stop so that I can pay attention to you? And four times they send him the same response. We want you to come and to meet with us. And four times Nehemiah says, I am carrying out a great project. I'm busy. I'm focused. I cannot come down to you. I'm not going to respond to you. Well, look what happens in in verse five. But then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide with me uh, to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it is reported among the nations. And Geshem says it's true that you and the Jews, you are plotting to revolt. Notice they're doing the same thing that happened before. And therefore, you, that's why you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king. And you've even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report, it will go back to the king. It will go back to your boss. Let us meet together. When they realize Nehemiah is not coming, they begin to attack his character. They begin to to make up lies They begin to accuse him of planning a revolt, that he's gonna gonna set himself up as, as king, that he's gonna have people proclaim all throughout the city that he is the king of Judah. And they say, look, unless you agree to come and meet with us, we're gonna tell your boss. We're gonna tell the king. And then what do you think is gonna happen, Nehemiah? Nehemiah, he's going to put a stop to this. Notice, they're doing whatever they can to pull Nehemiah away from the vision that God has called him to. They're trying to pull him away from this project. But listen to what he says back, verse 8. I sent this reply, nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. I love that response. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just, you're just making it up out, out of your head. Notice here how Nehemiah doesn't respond. Nehemiah doesn't get all worked up and bent out of shape. I can't believe they're saying these things about me. He doesn't spend hours responding and and writing a letter addressing all the false accusations. He doesn't spend time trying to, to defend himself and justify himself. That's not true what you're saying. He doesn't try to get even with them and, and insult them. He simply says, nope, not true. You're making it up. He doesn't have time to waste responding to their offense. Then verse nine, Nehemiah says this. They were all trying to frighten us. They're trying to intimidate us. They're thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I pray now strengthen my hands, Lord. Nehemiah is saying, God, they're trying to wear me down. They're trying to discourage me. They want me to quit. They're lying about me. They're they're slandering me. They're threatening me. They're trying to intimidate me. God, I need you to strengthen me. I need your strength to carry out this vision that you've given me. God, I need your strength to not lose focus of what you've called me to do. And then verse 14, he says this. He says, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet uh, Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. What's Nehemiah saying here? He's saying, God, 
it's your situation to take care of. You will handle my enemies. You will handle the, the, the offense. I don't need to be outraged about what they're doing. I don't need to take it personally. I don't need to be offended. I simply need to focus on what you have called me to do. I need to focus on this compelling vision. And then finally in verse 15 it says this, so the wall, it was completed in just 52 days. You see, it was this compelling vision that God gave Nehemiah to rebuild the wall that allowed him to endure the offenses. It allowed him to endure the, the, the insults, the lies, the intimidation, the, the threats. His vision allowed him to press on despite the opposition, to complete the task that God had called him to do. So what, what does all of this mean for, for us today? How is this story from thousands of years ago about a man rebuilding a wall in Jerusalem, what's, what's the relevance for, for our life today? Now, most of us probably won't ever be asked by God to go about rebuilding a, a, a wall or a temple or anything like that. But you see, we have been given something so much greater. As followers of Jesus, we have been given the most compelling vision for our lives. A vision that is changing our world and is shaping eternity. And that calling, that invitation is to advance the movement and the mission of Jesus. To make disciples of all nations. To help usher in the kingdom of God. To help bring heaven to earth. And if you've given your life to Jesus... If you've said yes to him and surrendered your life to him, that is your vision for life. That is your why. That is your purpose, to advance the movement and the mission of Jesus. It's the most compelling vision you will ever find. So if that's our vision, if that's what God is calling us to, then why are we so easily offended? Why are we distracted by the, the petty offenses in life? Why are we worked up over the nonsense going on in, in culture? Here's why I think so many of us, we get caught up in, in offense and, and outrage. Because for many of us, our vision for life is too small. We have replaced a compelling God-given vision and traded it for a small self-focused vision. We've taken this vision from God to carry out the movement and mission of Jesus. That's changing the world, that's shaping of eternity, and we have replaced it with a small self-focused vision. And catch this, a small vision for life leads to great offense in life. When you have a small vision for your life, it leads to great offense in your life. And let me unpack that a bit here. For many people, their vision for life has become simply, I want to be rich. I want to make a lot of money. I want a big salary. I want a large net worth. I want a big retirement account. For some, their vision for life is, I just, I just want to be happy. I don't really know what that means, what that looks like. I just want to be happy. For some, it's I want to be successful. 
I want people to respect me. I want people to admire me. I want to climb the the corporate ladder. I want to achieve a lot. For some, it's just, I, I want to have fun. I want to enjoy life. I want it to be exciting. I want it to, to be adventurous. For some, it's just I want to be liked. I want to be accepted and included for who I am. But for many, it has become a small, self-focused vision. And here's the thing. If your vision for your life is your own personal happiness and satisfaction, if that's your goal, if that's your focus, your own happiness and satisfaction, then you will see every single obstacle to your happiness as an offense. You will see everything that gets in the way of what you want as a personal attack. The email, the Facebook post, the insult, the rude comment, the, the, the political decisions, anything that is happening that you see as an offensive, you feel like it's a personal attack. These things will be seen as a threat to your vision for life, a threat to your happiness, a threat to your success and your reputation. A small vision for life, it leads to great offense in life. But you see, God is offering each and every one of you a vision for life that is so much bigger than just you. That is so much bigger than just your own happiness and your own satisfaction that's bigger than yourself. And when your vision is is bigger than just you, when it's this vision that Jesus has invited you to of, it has eternal implications. It's involving the whole world, it's not just about you. When your vision is more than just you, the offenses in life, they no longer carry the same weight. They, They stop having the same impact. Because when you step back for a minute and you look at what God is doing, what God has called you to, they just don't matter. They don't have the the same power in your life anymore when your vision is more than just your own personal happiness and satisfaction. So like when, when, when you're mocked by somebody, or when somebody insults you or they slander you or they they gossip about you, just like Nehemiah, you don't have time to go down and deal with it. Like you have this compelling vision for your life. You don't have time to to leave what you're doing to go and deal with that. You don't have time to spend three hours typing back that response to that email, pointing out all the areas they're wrong, showing them how, how you're right. Hey, see my response below in red. And then they just delete it and don't even read it. Like you don't have time to spend hours on Facebook where there's that news article posted and there's 1,400 comments below, scrolling through that and replying to people you don't even know. Like you, you don't have time to do that. You don't have time to spend the entire day angry and bent out of shape because some guy at the grocery store was rude to you in the morning. No, you are doing a great work. You are carrying out the mission and the movement of Jesus. You don't have time to stop and respond to these offenses because your vision is not just you. Your vision is bigger. Your vision is eternal. That's what Jesus is inviting you into. And the offenses, they lose their power when your vision is compelling. I love what the the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse one, he says this, therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, of people who have carried out the vision before us, let us throw off, 
Let us get rid of everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. He says, we are running a race. And it's not a sprint. It is a marathon. It's a long and grueling race. And in order for us to run this race well, to run with perseverance, we have to throw off. We have to get rid of anything that will slow us down or trap us. And for us today in our culture, I believe that is the the offenses, the nonsense in culture. We have to throw it off. Those things that are trying to slow us down, that are trying to distract us and detour us. We need to focus. We need to run with perseverance. And then he says this verse two. He says, fixing our eyes, not on the offense, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him. Notice what Jesus did. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him, think about him, who endured such opposition, such offense from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He says, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. We must be completely locked in and we must follow his example. Jesus endured great offense. He suffered incredible opposition, but he pressed on. He endured, he persevered because he had a vision that was greater than the offense. He had a vision that was greater than our sin. And that vision was to lay down his life so that you and I could find true life. And the author here of Hebrews is saying, consider him, meditate on that, think about that so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's in Bell Shoals. We don't have time stop and respond to everything that offends us. We, we don't have the luxury of being constantly outraged at our culture. We can't afford to get down from the wall because we are doing a great work. We are carrying out the mission and the movement of Jesus, a movement that is changing our world and is shaping eternity. But I just wondered this morning, has your vision for your life become too small? Have you replaced God's vision for your life with a self-focused vision? I wanna be rich, I wanna be happy, I wanna be successful, I wanna have fun, I wanna be liked. Listen, in order for you to live an unoffended life, the life that Jesus is calling you to, you need a compelling vision for your life. And you won't find a more compelling vision 